The language of repentance comes up unexpectedly in conversations I have about work we have to do in public, like racial healing. As a teacher to college students and a person in recovery, Lewis Newman explores repentance as a refreshing practice, the stuff of our ordinary lives, even beyond the lifetimes of those we may have wronged. The Jewish High Holy Days, which are now upon us, the New Year of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, create an annual ritual of repentance, both individual and collective. The Hebrew word is shuva, and this is work that begins in oneself but does not end there. We cannot literally go back in time and undo what we did. And yet, repentance is precisely that process by which We can, in the moral realm, if not in the physical realm, we can go back to the deed, we can find that part of ourselves that led to doing the transgression and reform ourselves. I I find that inspiring to think that we are not in bondage to even our most grievous mistakes. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Lewis Newman is associate dean of Carleton College in Minnesota and a professor of religious studies there. He's the author of several books on Jewish ethics and theology, including Repentance, the Meaning and Practice of Shuva. So I would like to start where, you know, where I always start, um, how, how you would describe the spiritual background of your life, of your childhood. I would say that I grew up here in St. Paul in a family that was very deeply Jewish. My parents were both um, leaders in the Jewish community in a variety of ways. I grew up in a home in which um, Jewish affairs and issues of Jewish life were just kind of dinner table conversation all the time. Uh, so that was kind of in the, in the air. And then um, they felt Im- that it was important for me to get a strong Jewish education, which my mother had had, but my father hadn't. He'd grown up in a small town in, in Brainerd in northern Minnesota. Right. And, so, uh, and so they sent me to a, a Jewish afternoon school. And unlike most kids who sort of drop out after their bar or bat mitzvah age, I continued because I actually enjoyed it and I liked studying and I found the material interesting. And after I got to the end of high school, I decided I wanted to keep studying in college. So I took Hebrew and right. more Hebrew in college and so on. So it, it just sort of became a very important part of my educational life. But you're not a rabbi, are you? I'm not a rabbi, so you were, no. So your interest was, was in delving into the theology as an academic rather than a spiritual leader. That's right. And then I think as I've gotten older, I've kind of come around through my own development to sort of explore uh, the, the, the personal relevance of this material to me. And mm-hmm. my academic life and my personal life are more and more intertwined the older I get, I guess. Yeah. You know, I just want to mention one other thing. When you, in your writing, you talk about in your childhood that you were, you were kind of a model child and that everyone told you that. And it seems mm. to me that, that that came with a certain spiritual pressure, um, almost kind of a, it, it had, it was a complicated thing that created some distortions for you. And I just, I wondered if you would even, to me, that also kind of belonged to that background that from, through which you've emerged. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. Uh, and it was only later on, I suppose, through some years of therapy that I came to realize that, I mean, I was proud of myself when I was a kid that, you know, my parents always thought I was, I could sort of do no wrong. Yeah. Uh, and then I began to realize as I got older that that was really a double-edged sword. 
and that the other side of that was I could never admit to myself that I had done something wrong. I had to figure out some way to hide it or run from it or make it better immediately. Um, and so I became more and more prone, I think, to wanting to claim only the best parts of myself. And that leads me, of course, into the subject of repentance. It does. Became, it leads I became, right I, became, in. I, be, I became aware that, you know, there's, there's work to do here. Yeah. And, and there's a kind of wholeness that's missing when you try to live your life always in that place of perfection or striving yeah. uh, for perfection. Yeah. And so you wrote this book um, on repentance um, a few years ago. And you know, it's been sitting in my office all this time, and I don't, I can't explain the mysterious ways by which we finally get to something. <laughs> but you know, I've, I've, it's a. I think repentance is such a, both the idea and the notion, are so important. Mm-hmm. But one of the things you point out is that, you know, repentance is connected to the language and the notion of sin, and it's often used in conjunction with forgiveness and often, as you say, kind of confused with forgiveness. And one of the things that you point out that feels important to me is you say, you know, in Christianity, of course, it's a very complicated notion in theology and sacred text, but but it's it's often connected in, in kind of a surface way with, with death and kind of with... Um, condemnation. So I wonder if you just talk a little bit about kind of separating out repentance from sin and forgiveness, the way these things get talked about culturally. Sure. Well, this is obviously a very rich topic and we could spend a long time on sin it's, altogether. So let's and, not, and I, we can't stay here too long, but let's start course, there because it feels important. Of course. Yeah. And this is a very loaded notion um, Yeah, And Jews. it's actually and, not and, very, it's, it doesn't ring very, doesn't work very well in modern ears, I think. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. And that's why I begin by saying that while there are obviously many different strains within every religious tradition, much of what Judaism teaches about sin is that it's a kind of – it's more like illness than it is like death. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, sometimes illnesses can be life-threatening, but, but many times they're not. And, and, and so you can be healed. There's a lot of talk about forgiveness and repentance as a form of healing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's a sense of – there's something wrong that needs attention, but it's not something that's necessarily my undoing. If only I bring my proper attention to it and turn away from the path that I'm on toward uh, a different path, a, mm-hmm. a path of wholeness and integrity. And so in, in a certain way, I think it does seem to me that Christian writers very much more often talk about sin as a kind of, it's, it's innate in our nature. Mm-hmm. And Jewish writers tend to talk about sin as, though that, though that notion is also present in Judaism, yeah. they tend to talk about sin much more as missing the mark. It's a mistake. It could be a, ser- a very serious mistake, but it's a mistake, and a mistake can be atoned for, and it can be undone. Yeah. I mean, here's something you wrote that I, I just, I really like this. Sin, sin is about pretending that something is true when in fact it is not Idolatry is pretending that something is divine and worthy of our devotion when, in fact, it is not. And then he wrote, repentance is all about choosing truth over deception. Mm -hmm. I really like that. Thank you. Yeah. No, I think that's really – I think repentance really is about coming to terms with who we really are. And that's true in a couple of senses. It's true both in terms of claiming our own mistakes, not running from them, not hiding them, but actually claiming them, knowing that they're true – 
and owning them, and also owning the fact that deep down, our core essence is, is ultimately good. God created us with a pure soul, uh, our tradition teaches. And in that sense, doing repentance, doing shuva, is about returning to the purity and wholeness that's kind of your original nature that you've strayed from. And in that sense, too, it's about honesty and truthfulness. It's about being true to who we really are, ultimately. So let's talk about the word, because language and words and letters in Hebrew are so Mm. important. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can, they're barely, this isn't transparent to people reading the Bible who don't know Hebrew. And it's very metaphorical and visual. And the the exact translation of shuvah would be turning, returning, responding. Talk about that word and the different metaphors um, that it suggests and how those add up to a definition. (laughs) Right. Now, I think it is very important. And in Hebrew, there are sort of root words. And the the root word of teshuvah or tshuva, as people would typically say in in anglicized form, is that it is about turning. So turning away from the path you've been on back toward a loftier goal, back toward our true selves, back toward God, back toward a, a righteous life, right? So it's a, it's a kind of shifting orientation, so really turning your attention somewhere else. It's also about returning, and in that sense, returning to one's true nature, as I said a minute ago, that, that sense of coming back to who we really um, uh, most deeply are and, and we're meant to be. Uh, and turning, of course, um, to God. And, and finally, it has that sense of responding. Uh, teshuvah, in another sense, means a response and an answer in, in modern Hebrew. And, um, and in that sense, it's really about as, as if there's a call coming out to us all the time, inviting us hmm. to repent. In fact, the tradition talks about this. There's a voice always coming from, from Mount Sinai, inviting us to return. And that sense of responding to an ongoing call it's there whether we're listening to it or not, is very much a part of what we mean by repentance. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring the meaning of repentance in ordinary time and across the span of our lives with Jewish ethicist Louis Newman. I remember when I studied the Hebrew Bible, and this was 20 years ago now, um, my professor talking about how visual the word is. Tell me if this is right, if I'm remembering this right, Mm -hmm. that it was like literally like it it had this image of literally stopping in your tracks and turning in another direction. That was Mm -hmm. a very physical image. I think that's I think that's right. Um, You know, if you think about this in terms of a 360 degree circle, if you're headed in one direction, and you turn only one degree or two degrees to the right or to the left, over a long period of time, maybe a very slight turn, Mm -hmm. but over an extended period of time, if you now walk in that direction, you'll end up in an utterly different place than if you extend that line outward infinitely. And and that that sense of turning even slightly, it doesn't have to be a radical, all of a sudden, transformation into into a new life. It's actually a very gradual process of recognizing... You know, I need to pay attention to that particular failing a little bit more and move in a little different direction. So what's the connection, again, that is linguistic and metaphorical with with the creative force of the universe? Was it that repentance was there before the creation? 
Right. Right? Or right. Somehow that yes. repentance preceded the creation of the world. Is right. that something Talmudic? Right. It is Talmudic. And yeah. it's actually one of the most startling and puzzling of the things that the rabbis say, uh, the ancient rabbis say about repentance. Of all the things that the rabbis list that were created before the world, why is repentance one of them? Um, And many interpreters in later eras have explored that theme. Rabbi Dean Steinsaltz, who's most noted an Israeli scholar for his uh, work on the Talmud, actually, um, but who's also a, a very, very profound philosopher, wrote a wonderful essay in which he explored this idea that when we do something wrong, what's done is done. We cannot literally go back in time and undo what we did. It's impossible, right? We only move in one direction yeah. in time, right? Yeah. So, so we can't actually go back and undo the wrong we did. And yet, repentance is precisely that process by which we can, as it were, morally, in the moral realm, if not in the, in the physical realm, we can undo what we did because we can go back to the deed, we can examine ourselves, we can make amends for it, we can apologize for it, we can find that part of ourselves that led to doing the transgression and search inside ourselves and reform ourselves. And to that extent, it's as if repentance allows us to, to breach the, the, you know, the laws of causality in a, in a, in a funny way. It's, <laughs> it has to be created before the physical world because once you're in the physical world, the laws of causality and the laws of uh, oh, time marching forward are, are set. I, I find that inspiring to think that actually there's a way in which you know, we, we, we are not chained to our past. We are not in bondage to even our most grievous mistakes. We can always find ways of repenting for them. There, there's something also I think that gets at a, a really core point um, in your thinking about this that, you know, again, re- talking about repentance is, is different from talking about, you know, moral obligation or moral condemnation or m- moral reckoning in the way we sometimes talk about sin, but that it is, in fact, about gaining freedom, gaining moral freedom, as you said, in fact, right. to create beyond whatever was damaged or flawed or harmful. Right. right. It, it's, um, it, it's a really interesting, uh, it's a really interesting idea. And, and, and one of the things that I, I came to realize is that in a certain sense, when we don't own our transgressions, when we run from them, which is after all the most natural thing to do, right? I, I did something wrong. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I cheated someone. I, I told a lie about something. I took credit for something I shouldn't have. I, you know, whatever, the, whatever it was, however small or large, right? Our immediate instinct often is to run away from it and, or to hide it or to lie about what we did wrong so that nobody will find out about it or something of that nature, right? Yeah. And, and, and in doing that, we essentially were in bondage to the thing that we've done. We're, mm-hmm. We have now essentially yeah. let it dictate our next move and the move after that. To do repentance is to be free of that. And, and ironically, or maybe paradoxically, really, it's when we own, it's when we run toward our transgressions rather than away from them that we actually become free of them, that we actually then can, by owning them and then claiming them and, and then distancing ourselves from what we have really taken full credit for, only then are we really free of it. Hmm. And um, you are in recovery. I am. I, I joined a recovery group 14 years ago, and I've been going regularly uh, ever since. Um, and it's a profound experience in a lot of ways, partly 
because it's in the context of a very safe space of other people who are coming to terms with their own failings and their own addictions of various kinds that you actually have the freedom to say, I did this. You know, I, I drank to excess. I, I did these other things and lied about them. I, I, you know, I did all of these things that I'm ashamed of and say that out loud and know that the, the circle in which you're sitting is a circle of people who will accept you and support you in your desire to own those things and repent for them and become a different kind of person. Mm-hmm. And, and in that sense, I think the, the process of repentance as Judaism describes it, is really quite close. The steps might have been in a slightly different order had, had, had a <laughs> Jewish uh, person written them, but, yeah. uh, but, but that, that's a sort of a technicality, really. In fact, the 12-step program really is a program of repentance. It's a program of spiritual development and moral accountability. And you use the language of soul reckoning as, as mm-hmm. part of your understanding of repentance. So I'd like you to talk about that, but also just like how... As you said, the 12 steps might have been in a different order, and they might have been phrased somewhat differently if they were written by a rabbi. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, I, but I'm also curious about how the language and the intelligence in the 12 steps has kind of flowed into your theology, your understanding, you know, how, how that has nuanced and deepened perhaps your understanding of, of the nature of repentance and the kind of stages of repentance. It's interesting. Um, the first step that someone gives in a 12-step in a group is often a step in which you recount the story of your own addiction and some of the things that you did, whether that's, you know, drug abuse or, or other kinds of, uh, of addictive behaviors and, mm-hmm. and the ways in which it dragged you down and distorted your relationships and distorted your sense of self and um, filled you with a sense of, uh, of guilt and, and shame. One of the people in my group consistently, time after time, would talk about how much he appreciated hearing this person's story because he could see the goodness in this person. And I was really sort of taken aback the first time I heard I heard him do this. It was like, are you kidding? I just heard this person talking about, you know, being deceitful and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, stealing to support his habit and whatever else he right. did, right? And, and And yet I realized after hearing him do that a few times that what he heard was the remorse. And the remorse really is the the sign of the goodness showing through. It's that point at which we both really acknowledge and claim and own what we did and also step back from it and look at it from a bit of a distance and can say, I really don't want to live that life. And that's a sign of goodness. That's a sign of the goodness reasserting itself over against your, your having fallen into a dysfunctional pattern of behavior. Mm-hmm. And, and that's very much like what uh, Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav, a famous uh, Hasidic uh, teacher, means when he says that we should always look for the good in others. And that, in fact, even in a person who's virtually completely sinful, he says, you should find the very smallest bit of goodness in them. And on that account, you should, you should judge them for their merits. And when you do that, he says, even for the person who is most, you know, most sinful, when you, when you see their goodness, you help them repent. Um, you know, and that's such a different impulse than we have culturally, you know. <laughs> we, I think you say somewhere that we, we bounce back and forth between a pervasive failure to hold people accountable and an equally, equally powerful obsession with doing so. That's right. That's right. I, I think that our, our culture is actually sort of 
got this all wrong, mostly, in, in the sense that there's this funny way in which I think repentance is exactly in the middle. It's, it insists that you be held fully accountable, and it insists simultaneously that there's a way back. You can listen again and share this conversation with Lewis Newman through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today we're exploring the refreshing practice of repentance. That's a word often used in conjunction with sin or forgiveness, but it's quite a distinct spiritual and practical move. Individual and collective repentance, or shuva, is at the heart of the Jewish High Holy Day of Yom Kippur. I'm speaking with Lewis Newman, who's worked as a Jewish ethicist at Carleton College and as a person in recovery on what repentance means in ordinary lives, in ordinary time. You talk about it as a lost art, and I, I think the, the complexity of it you know, is suggested by what, what you just said, because there, we have a couple of different impulses, and they, they land on either side of that. That's right. That's right. So... Judaism does this incredible thing, right? The ancient Israelites set aside this day on the calendar right? Um, of expiation of the sins of the people. Um, you know, I've, I've been, I can be envious at times of, these, <laughs> of this kind of ritual, um, which to me also, Yom Kippur, you know, like just I like the word repentance. Mm-hmm. It has this bodily component. Mm-hmm. It's not merely spiritual which really reflects an intelligence about the fullness of humanity, which, you know, it's, it's remarkable that that was in the origins of this ritual 20 centuries ago. Right. And, and from my perspective, I think it's an acknowledgement that, I mean, in modern terms, we might say, you know, hitting the reset button, right? Yeah. It, it, there's a way in which every year we ought to have an opportunity to examine the past, to own what we did, to repent for it, and to start fresh. And, of course, it's, it's closely associated with the, with, with the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. It comes 10 days later. It's mm-hmm. the beginning of the new year. Now, you know, in ancient times, you know, there was a whole ritual and a goat was slaughtered and, and, and all the rest of the, the ritual that involved putting the sins of the people onto a scapegoat and sending it off into the wilderness. And a, a lot of very, very powerful physical rituals that we, of course, no longer observe— but all of that has been turned into a process of public confession and a process of personal introspection so that those days are really designed to clean us out. And, and that's, that's right, that very much a part of the cleansing. tradition of why you wear white yeah. on, right. uh, on Yom Kippur because you want to outwardly try to manifest the sort of sense of purity and freshness and new beginning that, you, that you're striving for internally and, and spiritually. Um, you know, I'm also, I, I think it's important that, you know, so there's also the day after Yom Kippur. <laughs> and, mm, yes, uh, of course. You know, and, and I think, you know, the, 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 sim- the ritual of being washed clean is one thing, and then there's the living it. You wrote something um, for the Jewish Forward, which is, you know, a really interesting magazine. Um, mm. So what you're describing is, it, it's, um, 
yeah, it's work, right? It's work that is the work of a lifetime. Mm, indeed. But in Judaism, also, there's this promise that the rewards of repentance are commensurate with the difficulty. And I, I thought it was so interesting in this yeah. article in the foreword. You know, they they titled it. I don't know if this is the title you gave it. The thrill of repentance. <laughs> Right, kind of pointing yeah. at what you gain, right. what you right. gain by this way right. of living. Right. And, and it's true. I mean, I think, um, you know, for, for anyone, and, and it doesn't have to be through a, a 12-step program or any, any formal program at all, actually, right? But anyone who's had that experience of really coming to terms with something that they did wrong, actually apologizing and expressing their remorse to the person that they hurt and feeling free then, of it, that that process, which we've all experienced in one at one time or another, um, is thrilling. It's it's cleansing, and it feels as though sure, it's hard. Nobody wants to step forward to the person that they've harmed and say, you know, I really, you know, I was really callous and mean and 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 short sighted when I said or did the thing that I did right before, right? But but when you do it, you find that there's a liberation in it. Yeah, it's the joy that comes from from feeling as though you've, you've overcome uh, the past instead of being enslaved to it. Right. You mentioned briefly um, in your writing that you once conducted some ethnographic studies of the ethics of professionals. I did through and I wonder, a project at how Indiana does that, University. Was, did, what did you learn? You know, how did that illuminate this reflection you've done on repentance and how humanly possible it is and how it might work in different parts of our lives? Right. It was fascinating. It's a very interesting project uh, through the Pointer Center at Indiana University. I was, this is known quite a number of years ago. I was actually involved in two different phases of that uh, project, and two articles came out of that. One in, involved looking at the ethics of—it was all about looking at the ethics of, of, of professionals of different yeah. kinds. And each person in the group chose a different group of professionals to work with. And once I did this with pediatricians and pediatric specialists, mm. um, and once I did it with trial court judges. Mm. And in both cases, interestingly, I discovered one, one thing that was quite similar. Uh, th- there is, in the context of professional practice for physicians, the opportunity to acknowledge— again, among themselves and in safe spaces, you know, I, I really made a serious medical mistake here. Right. And, and some patient got worse or maybe even died as a result. And I need to recognize that and own that because in order to avoid making that same mistake again, I need to know what I did wrong and I need to have a safe place in which to do that and to talk about that. And the trial court judges that I talked to uh, talked about how the power that they, that they wield over the people who appear before them in court is, is sort of awesome and that, and that they need to be aware of their own vulnerabilities, prejudices, failings. They need to know their own blind spots to know that, as one judge put it to me, you know, uh, a very attractive young woman comes before him and he might give her a more lenient, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, sentence than somebody who looks kind of like, you know, mean and bedraggled and somebody that he wouldn't, you know, want to associate with, right? And to know that is to know that you have that vulnerability and to work against it. To be blind to that is precisely to avoid the, the kind of level of ethics that we expect of, uh, of, of professionals and that they expect of themselves. And so that, to me, tied in very closely with this, this notion of soul reckoning, that we mm. have to actually know ourselves deeply, that each transgression is an opportunity to go, now, why did I do that? Why did I... 
Mm. you know, speak ill of that person behind their back, right? Or why did I snap at my spouse or scream at my kids or whatever I might have done on a given day? Right? What, what was it going on for me that made me do something that I'm now regretting? And, and to know that about myself is to know wh- where the growing edge of my moral life is and, and to be able to then move beyond the behavior of the past. And, and so what I, what I learned in talking to these professionals really is that they are, whether they call it repentance or not, they are engaged right. regularly in their own right. process of coming to terms with what their own vulnerabilities are and, and recognizing that if they don't do that, they risk some very serious mistakes. Yeah, so clearly, again, this is this is work, but it's the work of being alive, being fully alive, maybe. I mean, here's something you wrote that I, I want to read. I mean, it's a little bit long, but I, I think it's really lovely. You know, you say, you know, say the cost of ignoring the work of repentance, which I think we do in our public life, right, are not easily quantifiable, but the evidence is all around us. We see it in the lives of public figures, politicians and corporate executives who get caught in some deceitful or fraudulent behavior and deny it. We see it on daytime television shows where people confess their transgressions before a live audience for their entertainment. Most of all, we know it in those quiet moments in our own lives when we recognize that we are not living up to our own moral standards, yet don't know how to restore our own sense of wholeness and integrity. And then you say, the ultimate benefit of doing tshuva is that it offers us a way to overcome our past precisely because we have confronted and taken full responsibility for it. It enables us to escape the sense of guilt, in some cases even despair, with which many of us live. In its place, we come to live with self-acceptance and hope because we know that moral renewal is always a possibility. Right. It's very beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's striking. As I, as I did this exploration of repentance... Yeah, I was always struck every time I would read something in the paper or watch something on the evening news. <laughs> but you know, the, the, the person who's standing for the courthouse, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. You know, th- this sort of almost charade that gets played because we we have this notion that if we put up a good enough front, right, that the world doesn't have to know what we really did wrong. Yeah, and we'd rather they didn't know. We'd rather let that remain uh, a secret, and and so. That's part of, I think, what makes the work of repentance so incredibly arduous is you have to be willing to live transparently, at least in the, in the context of a small, say, recovery group or in the context of your most intimate relationships. You have to let people know you fully. And to do that is to make yourself extraordinarily vulnerable. So, you know, you pose a few hard questions, I think puzzles really, that that have been much considered, but but still kind of remain hard, open questions. And one of them, I'd love to know how you think this through, is, you know, are there transgressions for which repentance is impossible? And if so, mm. why? Right. Well, and of course, this question invariably comes up when I speak about this um, yeah. in synagogues and other places where I've, where I've been invited to talk. And, 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 you know, immediately, for many modern Jews, it's the Holocaust. It's the it's Holocaust, the right. Thing, I mean, right? And, that comes to right. mind. How can you, yeah. how, how can, how could a Nazi repent for extraordinary Yeah, how could that mean anything? Ex-ho- right, exactly. And mm-hmm. would we even, would we even consider such a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so within the tradition, you find a couple of different points of view about this. Of course, you find 
this extraordinary passage in, in Exodus in, in the context of talking about Pharaoh and God hardening Pharaoh's heart and what does all that mean? And, and, um, and at some points, the rabbis talk about the notion that, you know, the person who says, I'll sin and repent, I'll sin and repent, you know, as if to say, yeah, there's no big deal, I'll sin and I can just go on. Yom Kippur comes around, all of us, you know, I can, I can <laughs> right. get a free ticket. Right. Right. I, it's like a get out of jail free card. Yeah. But th- that person, they say, it's not possible for that person to repent. And it, it, they may mean by that that it's psychologically impossible for that person to ever really acknowledge deeply acknowledge and do the work of repentance. They, they, don't, they haven't taken them, them, themselves seriously enough yet to actually do this work. Um, it, it may be the case that there are people who have sort of become so habituated to sinful behavior and egregious behavior that they really, really can't find their way back. I think we've all it, known it, it, people who've integrated harmful behavior towards themselves or others into their sense of self, even into their sense of power, right? Right. And we've all done that at some point. But you, you, you I mean, I, I certainly think I've known people who you feel like they've gone past the point of no return. Right. Um, and and I, I, I do think that that, I do think that that's a possibility. And at the same time, I <laughs> want to add, you know, the tradition also wants to say that even though well, to take the common example, right? You've got to apologize and make restitution to the people you've harmed in order to do full repentance, right? Suppose that person can't be found. It was somebody that you mm-hmm. stumbled across, you know, in some situation and you don't even know their name. You couldn't even find them if you wanted to. Or suppose it's a person who's now passed away and you you, you literally can't uh, uh, I mean, apologize or, to them. Or let's, I mean, let's name that that hardest of examples. I mean, what if it's a Nazi who can't? Speak to the six million Jews who died, right, or and right. other millions of people who died. Right, exactly. Um, and interestingly, there are these fascinating passages. One from Maimonides, in which he's sort of giving us this whole catalog of sins for which you you can't achieve full repentance, mm. supposedly because mm. of one of these things. There's a you know there's a barrier of one sort or another to doing one of the steps of of repentance that, that's required. And at the very end of the list, you know, paradoxically, he says, you know, all of these are impediments to repentance. But if you truly want to repent, the <laughs> gates of repentance are always open and you can. <laughs> right. So he sort of wants to have it both ways in, yeah. in a funny sense. And I think, I think the tradition wants to walk a fine line because on the one hand, it wants to acknowledge the depths of evil to which humanity is capable of, of falling. And it wants to say... But hope is always there if you genuinely want it. So let's take the example of the, of the Nazi or of the mass murderer. Yeah. You know, obviously the, you know, the killings recently in Charleston come, come to mind. It's just yeah. a small example, yeah. really, right? But, but nonetheless, an extraordinary— young man. Yeah. Right, the, the, the young man who, who walked into the church and, uh, and killed all those innocent people. And, and you want to say, what could a person possibly do? Well, so imagine for a moment if that person— were willing to move into the African-American community and devote the rest of his life, and he might have a very long life ahead of him, right, to, to working on behalf of the issues that matter to African-Americans and supporting the church whose lives he destroyed that day, that Sunday. And, and if he were genuinely remorseful and spent the rest of his life devoted to undoing the wrong he did as best he could, would we not want to say, well, you know, he can't undo the past, but remember mm-hmm. the point is not undoing the past. The point is 
growing from the past and turning yourself around and demonstrating that you're genuinely a new person. Mm-hmm. And I think we we could acknowledge that that is a possibility. Well, and in the case of Charleston, there's also this remarkable witness in front of us of the family members of the people who he killed, who that day de- declared that he was still worthy of love, right? So right. they and, and actually that, that, created an opening. That's right. And that message is a, you know, we many Jews, again, think of that, you know, all forgiving God is uh, as kind of a Christian notion, and, yeah. and and the God of the Hebrew Bible is a God that wants to hold us accountable. Yeah. But but the truth is, God both wants to hold us accountable, <laughs> and wants to forgive us. Yeah. And that's the that's one more of the paradoxes of of this work of repentance, right? Mm. If you're not fully accountable, then you don't have to do repentance, right? If you have no way back, then there's no point to doing repentance. It's exactly at the point at which you both are fully accountable and fully free to choose a different path that repentance sits. And and that's the balancing act. You have to believe both that you are accountable and that you're free in order to repent. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring the refreshing practice of repentance, work that begins in oneself but does not end there. Lewis Newman has explored this as a Jewish ethicist and as a person in recovery. So this also, you know, comes close to another very mysterious notion that's in your writing about repentance, that there is a notion of repenting to the dead. Mm-hmm. So would you talk about that? Right. Well, again, the, you know, the, the rabbis have this extraordinary uh, idea that if you need to, to repent to a person who's died, you're supposed to go to the grave of that person and bring with you 10 members of the community. And 10 members is significant because that's the minimum quorum for communal prayer. Yeah. Uh, in Jewish tradition. So you come to the grave and in the hearing and the witness of those 10 people, you apologize um, to the deceased and thereby you do repentance, you do tshuva. And it's interesting, when I, what I wrote in the book, I've never known anybody who's actually done this. That sounds <laughs> you know, remarkable, right? Yeah. And then one day in the context of talking to somebody in a synagogue in Palo Alto, they told me the story of somebody who did exactly that, of a woman who had a younger sibling who had been disabled and and then died. And, and this older sibling felt that she had always been mean and not properly respectful of the needs of her younger sibling. And she felt terribly guilty after her sister died. And she went to the grave with her parents and repented to her now deceased um, sibling. Uh, and, and you can imagine the power that that would have, yeah. right? Um, yeah. To, to actually know that there's even then a possibility of... Uh, of trying to make right what you what you did wrong. Well, and I think you know, you as you describe that, you you talk about the implications of it. You know, what it implies is that is that when we harm another person or, or when we fail to rise to the occasion, that we that we somehow damage the community as a whole. That the that the mm. consequences of our action kind of transcend space and time. I mean, just as our bodies and our psyches hold a lot that transcends space and time. Right. Um, you don't have to talk about it in a mystical way. Right. Um, Our sins live on after us, right? Yeah. I mean, there's some sense in which what we did wrong continues to have impact and ripple effects long after we're not even here to see them any longer. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, you said that the, that Jews have long believed that our transgressions against one another have cosmic consequences. But then there's also the flip side of that, which is Martin Buber saying, the wounds of the order of being can be healed in infinitely many other places than those at which they were inflicted, which is right. such a, a wonderful a, thing to think about. When I came across that passage in Buber's writing, I was... Um, I was I was struck by the power of that notion, right? Yeah. That so I, I can't go back and find the person that I actually harmed, but suppose I could find some other person in like situation and make it up to them, right? If I can now be more loving and and compassionate toward others in ways that I wasn't on a given occasion with someone else, I can rebalance the scales of justice, so to speak, in the universe by bringing more love and compassion into the world in one place where I took it away in some other. Right. And that is a very Jewish notion also, right? That one, even one good deed starts to tilt the scales, starts to tilt that's, those larger scales. That's right. And they, and they talk in, in the Talmud about, you know, the power of, of repentance is that it brings redemption to the world. Right. Uh, that each good deed we do, each time we repent, we actually push the world a little closer toward goodness, right? And a little farther from from evil. And in that sense, every act has cosmic significance, right? It's like the, you know, the arc of uh, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, right? right. right? There's a sense in which it, it's a very long arc, but every little bit that every one of us does moves it a little farther in the right direction, bringing the world closer to the place that God wants it to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you acknowledge that miracles are out of fashion and <laughs> but they're yeah. you know this 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 what we're talking about here there's there's mystery to it there's there's an alchemy to it i mean so he's, you quote rabbi Soloveitchik. yeah rabbi Soloveitchik said um repentance cannot be comprehended rationally it does not really make sense even the angels do not understand what repentance is <laughs> right it's such a wonderful thing to yeah. think uh, you know even if you don't believe in angels the notion that angels uh, wouldn't <laughs> exactly. even under, would, even angels wouldn't understand this yeah. right you know and that's I, I end the book there because it strikes me that there is something mysterious in the human spirit that gets touched in this in this process of repentance. That is to say, you know, I've watched this happen, right, in the lives of other addicts and recovering people in the circle that I've been a part of for these years. And and I've seen it outside of that circle in others, right? Yeah. That, 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 a, that a person who may have been habitually one way at a certain point really does turn their lives around and become a different kind of person. How, the, how did that happen? How did they manage to do that? Right? What was it that enabled them to make the changes all of a sudden, or maybe even gradually, at one point in their lives that they were incapable of making at an earlier point in their lives. It, it, it is a kind of a mystery. And the notion that I can take my faults and turn them into merits is makes no sense rationally. Yeah. Uh, as, I, as I say, you know, it's, it's like, it's like t- having an accountant tell you that a, that, that a debit is a credit or something. It doesn't, it doesn't compute. And yet, in another sense... On a spiritual level, it's entirely possible that we could take our failings and use them to move our lives forward toward more wholeness and toward more goodness. And when we see that happening, it's sort of wondrous and mysterious. And then, because I, I like just continuing to assert the paradox, and so there's the mystery of that, of the turn and the return. But there's something in me that takes delight in this paradox. You know, that redemption then... Is real, but it also doesn't mean perfection or moral blamelessness, right? So there's an end, which is also a beginning, 
and that mm-hmm. life goes on in all in all its fullness and and messiness, um, though it may be changed. That's right, yeah. because the purpose of this is a sort of a a burning away of the dross of the of the human spirit, right? And it's never done, and yet each time you do it, you know that you have come a little closer mm. to the kind of life that you were meant to live. Mm. So, you know, one of the other hard questions that you pose is, you know, it's not as hard as, is there, is there no transgression, <laughs> mm-hmm. which cannot be, for which repentance um, is impossible. But, but, but what is, here's the question, is what is the experience of Shuva for those who engage in repentance continually throughout their lives? So, so I do want to, I want to turn that question at you. And, you know, this is something that you've been not just practicing in your life as a Jew, but also reflecting on as a scholar in your spiritual life and as a person in recovery and as a person who, you know, has this ritual of Yom Kippur year in, year out. So but so I just wonder, you know, as you've moved through your life um, with all of that, what have you learned um, that continues to nuance it? And, and hmm. also what have you learned about how to make it more real and more effective? That's a wonderful question. I've learned that it's hard. It's never easy. I mean, the the path is laid out. I mean, the tradition is very clear about how one goes about doing this work. And even if one practices it regularly, it's still hard. It's still hard to live in that self-reflective way of knowing always that there's an opportunity here to grow and to learn and to do better. And so I I guess the first thing I'd say is that I've learned that without the support of a network of people around me in my recovery circle, it would be very difficult to do this. It would be very difficult without that support and simultaneously without the support of my own religious community, the synagogue that I attend regularly and I'm very active in, the the, the larger circle of friends with whom I share deeply the, you know, the things that are happening in my life. I just, I want to underline that because I, I, I think that, you know, we've talked about how hard it is to talk about something like repentance in American culture. And I think something that works against it is that we tend to think of everything being an individual effort, right? And you're, so one of the things you're saying is, you know, that you sink more deeply into this sacred realization that we we aren't supposed to be alone with this stuff anyway keep that's, going <laughs> that's that's ab- no that's absolutely right i think yeah. it is it is you know the work is our own as i said earlier but the the, the process the the context is yeah. a communal one and i guess the other thing i've learned is that the thr- the thrill of repentance to use that expression yeah. the sense of joy or you might say in the in sort of 12 step terminology and the terminology of the serenity prayer, the, the, the sense of serenity that one finds, that I have found when, when I have felt that I've actually done something wrong and then really truly repented for it, that sense of serenity and calm and peacefulness is among the most wonderful feelings I know. And that's part of what maybe propels me to keep wanting to do it, despite yeah, right. how arduous and hard it is, right? Because right. there really is a payoff. Mm-hmm. The payoff really is that I feel cleaner morally. And that's what makes this work worthwhile. 
um, is that it enables us to repair what's broken. Um, one of the great things that, again, Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav said was, um, if you believe you have the power to ruin it, believe you have the power to fix it. Mm. And I think there's a, there's a proportionality here. That, you know, <laughs> the work is really hard, but the benefit is really, mm. is really remarkable. Mm. And um, I, I think those are the two things I've learned from both my personal work and my scholarly work and, and even the work that I've done in the context of, of my own Jewish community where, you know, in various leadership roles, I've had opportunities to work with a lot of people and watch all sorts of relationships go bad and then work with people to help try to make up for what, what got off track. And doing that and watching that happen there is a kind of a miraculous quality to it. Yeah. And you feel like you're witnessing something really extraordinary when that happens. Lewis Newman is Associate Dean of Carleton College and the John M. and Elizabeth W. Musser Professor of Religious Studies. He's the author of several books on Jewish ethics and theology, including Repentance, The Meaning and Practice of Shuvah. At onbeing.org, you can sign up for a weekly email from us, a letter from Loring Park. In your inbox every Saturday morning, a curated list of the best of what we are reading and publishing, including writings by our weekly columnists, Parker Palmer, Omid Safi, Sharon Salzberg, and Courtney Martin. This week, read Courtney's column on The Art of Daily Ritual. Find the blog and sign up for your letter from Loring Park on any page at onbeing.org. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Nikki Oster, Michelle Keeley, Maya Terrell, Annie Parsons, Tony Berleffi, Marie Sambale, and Hannah Rehack. Our major funding partners are the John Templeton Foundation, the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org the Fetzer Institute, fostering awareness of the power of love and forgiveness to transform our world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of a new initiative, Public Theology Reimagined. And the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.